In the last episode of Walking with Dante, we had a transitional passage in the 14th canto of Inferno in which Dante basically got told that there's a little river here with some leeway that they can walk down. And then he claimed that Virgil had instigated a desire, a dicio, in him, and he needed more information. He needed a meal. We're not going to get a meal. We're going to get a banquet. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante. We are in the 14th canto of Inferno. We're at lines 94 through 120. And in fact, we're going to be on this passage for two episodes of this podcast. But I'll explain that in a bit. Everything here is Virgil's meal. Virgil is going to launch off into his disquisition about the rivers and waters of hell. So without further ado... Canto 14 of Inferno outlines 94 through 120. In the middle of the sea, there's a wasted land, he said to saying. It's called Crete. Under its king, the world was once chased. There's a mountain in that land. That mountain was well irrigated and leafy. It's called Ida. Now, it's a desolation, like something worn out. Rhea chose it to be the trustworthy cradle for her son. To better conceal him, whenever he cried, she made her followers raise a racket. A gigantic statue of an old man stands inside the mountain. He gave the cold shoulder to Damietta and turns his gaze toward Rome as if it were a mirror. His head is crafted out of the best gold, his arms and chest pure silver, down to his crotch all bronze, on down from there he's all smelted iron, except for his right foot. It's terracotta. He stands on this foot more than the other one. A fracture runs through the whole thing except for the golden bits. What's more, this break drips tears which collect and make their passage through that cavern. Their course goes on down until it gets here, creating Acheron, Styx, and Phlegathon. After that, they go on through these straits down to the place from which there is no more down, where there they make Cocytus. What that pool is like, you'll see for yourself. So I don't need to say anything else. That's the passage. And it is so strange that we're going to spend two episodes of the podcast on it. One, simply on this statue and this mountain and where Dante is coming up with all of this. And then a second episode on why the old man of Crete is here, and some speculation about that. So let's just talk and start with the statue itself. Dante is getting this idea of this statue from several places, but the most important place, there are actually going to be four references that come into play here, but the most important place is the Old Testament prophet of Daniel. And I want to read you the passage. Daniel is dealing with the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. 
the king has had a dream. And what he's basically asked is for all the wise men in his kingdom to tell him what he dreamt, <laughs> so they have to guess that part, and then tell him what it meant. Of course, nobody's willing to do that. He threatens to put everybody to death. And then Daniel steps forward, the prophet Daniel, and offers both the dream and its exploration and interpretation. If you want to look this up, I'm in Daniel the prophet, Old Testament prophet, chapter 2, and I'm starting at about verse 31 with Daniel. And Daniel says, you were looking, O king, and lo, there was a great statue. Sound familiar? This statue was huge. It's brilliance, extraordinary. It was standing before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of that statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver. Sound familiar? Its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked on, a stone was cut, not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. Okay, there's the passage. Daniel goes on to interpret it. Here's the deal. It's a progression of kingdoms. You're the gold head. Nebuchadnezzar, and after you is going to become mm, kingdoms that are lesser and lesser import of importance, perhaps, or less and less pure, perhaps, but are stronger and stronger until you get to these iron legs, and then suddenly these feet, so the whole thing's tottering up on feet that are made of iron and clay. This is the passage that Dante is cribbing as well as some others, as we'll talk about in a minute, in this bit of what is now called the Old Man of Crete. Let's go back to it and Virgil's explanation of it. Virgil says there's a gigantic statue of an old man inside the mountain. He gives the cold shoulder to Damietta, we're going to talk much more about this, and turns his gaze toward Rome. Notice none of that is in Daniel. And then Virgil says his head is crafted out of the best gold. Okay, that's similar to Daniel. His arms and chest are pure silver. That's close down to his crotch, all bronze. Now Dante's changing it a little bit. In the Daniel vision, it's the thighs that are bronze. So here we have a, a kind of waist and crotch. It literally in the Florentine says down to the fork. And you should know that fork is a little vulgar in the text, but so down to the fork of the man, his crotch, it's going to be all bronze for Virgil, not for Daniel. On down from there, it's all smelted iron, except for his right foot. It's terracotta. He stands on this foot more than the other one. Let's talk first about biblical interpretations of Daniel's passages. In the Middle Ages and even earlier in the patristic age of the Christian church, biblical interpreters saw this statue as sometimes the course of empire, and they often interpreted Daniel's statue as Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. That is, Babylon is the head of gold, and Daniel goes on and actually tells Nebuchadnezzar that he is the head of gold. And then come the other pieces, the silver, 
according to biblical interpreters, would then be, Daniel just says another kingdom comes, but according to the interpreters, that would be Persia, the bronze would be Greeks, and the iron would be Rome. This is also a little problematic because then you would have to believe that there was actual prophecy into the future for Daniel. It's unclear in actually Daniel's text that these are the kingdoms mentioned, but certainly most Christian interpreters saw it that way. Well, at least the ones who saw it as the progress of empire, because more interpreters saw this as a portrait of human decay. I realize that the prophet Daniel is talking about kingdoms succeeding one another, and yet biblical and patristic interpreters and medieval interpreters saw this statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees as a kind of allegory of human degeneracy. Here's how it goes. The gold head, because the notion is that you're intellect didn't fall with Adam at the fall of humankind, you still have your intellect. Because if your intellect is completely cloudy, you're not going to be able to reason out the way to salvation or make sense of God's revelation. So your intellect must be basically intact, even if it needs correction. Then down the body of the statue are the successive states of fallen degeneration, which finally end up standing on feet of a mixture of iron and rock, feet that cannot support this structure. So while your intellect may be intact, you're kind of degenerating down your body until you end up at this place where it is, uh, in Daniel's vision, iron and, and clay mixed together. A rock strikes it. The Christian interpreters interpret that as Christ strikes it. The whole statue falls down because Christ destroys the old man to bring in the new man of the resurrection. However, let's look at the changes Dante makes to this interpretation. It's extending the iron all the way up the legs, so even the thighs are iron. He's making only one foot the problem, and it's not a mixture of iron and clay, but it's terracotta. He's nixing that whole bit about the rock hitting the statue. This old man of Crete just stands there, and he's creating a crack from below the gold all the way down, which is not in Daniel's vision. Which brings us to a second source, that is Ovid's Metamorphoses. In book one of Ovid's Metamorphoses from line 89 to 150, Ovid lays out the ages of the world's history, and they are gold, silver, brass, and iron. And we kind of have this movement down from the golden days, the great golden age, on down into what is now this very hard iron world of the Roman Empire. Ovid lays out these ages, and there's probably some of that running behind this. I actually think that you can interpret the entire Old Man of Crete without any reference to Ovid, but it's been in the commentary for so long that it seems like we have to give Ovid his due because so many have tried to connect this statue to Ovid's sequential changing from the Golden Age to now. It's certainly in Daniel, the progression of civilizations itself. But there are two more sources that we should talk about that Dante is all weaving together here. This, of course, is happening in Crete. You can't think of Crete without thinking of the Minotaur. You can't think of it without thinking of Daedalus. After all, that's all going on on Crete. And Virgil in the Aeneid 
book three describes Crete as a desolate place or a desolation or a desert, which is what we have here in the opening of this passage. It says in the middle of the sea, there's a wasted land. It's called Crete. Under its king, the world was once chased. And this is why we get this notion that maybe Ovid is here because there does seem to be a golden age, although you'll note it's distinctly Christian, chaste. It's not the world was in harmony, the world was happy, the world was pleasure-filled. No, the world was chaste. Boy, you can feel it torque toward Christian theology. There's a mountain in that land. The mountain was once well irrigated and leafy. It's called Ida, and now it's a desolation, like something worn out. There's this implicit movement from a golden age to desolation, which most commentators see as coming out of Virgil, Crete is a desert, but encoding Christian logic into it. And the fall of humankind is kind of found inside that passage. I know this is complicated. It's about to get more so. There's a fourth source here, and it's St. Augustine. Augustine is going to take what he knows from Pliny the Elder's natural history. Augustine talks about a statue in Crete that is dug up, a giant statue that is most likely the statue of Orion. And this statue uh, comes up part of the classical world, part of the old gods, to use Virgil's phrase in comedy, the false and lying gods. Augustine refers to this digging up of this giant statue in Crete. So what's probably happened here is that our poet has fused Ovid, the Bible, the Neoneid, and Augustine into this vision of this guy that is inside a mountain. Well, guy, statue, inside a mountain. But I say guy because he's crying. He's in there and the tears are leaking out of this crack inside. There are two strange details. One, that one foot is made out of terracotta. Again, in Daniel's prophecy, both feet are made out of a mixture of iron and clay. Here, the iron goes all the way down in one leg, but in the other leg, it's stopped and the foot is terracotta. Even in Dante's day, terracotta is a known Italian commodity, a favored artisan craft of the Italian peninsula. It's hard not to see that foot of terracotta as a reference to something going on in Italy, and most commentators think it's Rome. In the end, this thing, this statue of humanity, it has come down to iron legs, which may be empire in some way or a political arrangement, but one of its feet is terracotta. And so you know what terracotta would do under these circumstances. It would break. It's not stable. So it's a perhaps hint of the corrupt papacy. Certainly most commentators see that that way. They see it that way because of that line that says the statue gives the cold shoulder or in the more in the Florentine, he turns his back on Damietta and turns his gaze toward Rome. Damietta, it's the westernmost point in the Egyptian Nile Delta. It's a place where ships would dock to go farther into Islamic lands. And you'll notice that this statue is turned away from that and toward Rome. And I always wonder if there's a slight implicit anti-crusading message here. If that foot 
that the thing is resting on is terracotta. And if that does represent the papacy that is corrupted and can't support the weight of humankind anymore, or at least one foot, maybe the foot of empire can, but unfortunately the statue favors the bad foot. Maybe the deal here is that we shouldn't look toward the crusading impulse while there's corruption in Rome. Or we shouldn't look toward that port that allows us into Islamic lands. The gaze of the statue is turned away. Or perhaps there is, the opposite of what I'm saying, a bigger crusading plea here for more crusades. That is, that the statue, because of the corruption in Rome, and after all, it says that Rome is like a mirror for this statue. Because of the corruption in Rome, the statue has turned away from Islamic lands. And that's where its focus should be, on the conquest of the Levant. Either way, you'd have to say that there is an opacity here. And if we just come down this, this passage, we see this bit about Crete, which in the center of the sea. He's talking about the Mediterranean Sea. We know Crete's not in the center, but in the classical world, it was thought of often as the center of the Mediterranean. It is a desolation, although it once was apparently fantastic. And then it's got this mountain. And now this little detail that I've blipped right over, Rhea chose it to be the trustworthy cradle for her son. Who? Jove is Rhea's son. Who was Capaneus cursing? Jove. We're going to hold that till the next episode of this podcast. But she secreted her son Jove here so that Saturn wouldn't eat her baby, the way he's eating all his children in the mythology. And so she hid him here, and the followers, her followers on this island of Crete would make a racket to cover up the baby's screams. So we can already see that it is both positive, this place in Crete, and negative. It may have fallen from the king when the world was chased. And yet, even before that, it was a very positive place, a place where Jove could be hid away from his carnivorous father. Here's this gigantic statue of an old man looking away from Islamic lands and toward Rome. We get all the progression of the metals in him. And then this bit about the fracture that runs through the whole thing except the golden bits, and it cries. It cries these tears, and now Virgil gets to it. He gets to the whole hydraulics of hell, which collect and make their passage down that cavern. Their course goes on down until it gets here, creating Acheron, sticks. And Phlegathon, finally, since Canto 12, Phlegathon has not been named. It is not here until almost the end of Canto 14 that Phlegathon, the river of blood, gets named. Now, how do these tears become blood? That I don't know. And that Dante doesn't explore. But I do know that Dante is becoming increasingly interested in the natural landscape of his own imaginative space, Inferno, because he's had to resort to this giant mythological figure to explain the hydraulics of hell. Remember, I told you this back up on Acheron. I said, where does that water go? You know, there's, there's Karen. There he is on his boat. Okay, let's assume the water swirls around, but you know, it can't just swirl around or else it would be fetid. Same with sticks. Then we've got this Phlegathon, the river of boiling blood. 
And now we see it coming out onto these burning sands. Wait a minute, where's all this water going? And where's it coming from? How to get where it is? Rather than leave that unexplained, Dante tried to solve it in the imaginative landscape. He created a reason for the hydraulics of hell. That should just bring you up short. He didn't need to explain this. Listen, it's hell. <laughs> the thing could be, you know, Acheron could just be going spinning around its circle forever. Sticks could be spinning around its circle forever with Filippo Argenti in it being torn apart. They didn't need this entire explanation for how water gets into hell, where it comes from. It comes from the old man of Crete, from the tears that come out of that crack. This is as if you were writing a novel and, I don't know, something happened in the novel and someone said, you know, you're going to have to explain that. How does that work? How how could, how does your character, I don't know, get on a plane to go to L.A. if your character doesn't have a driver's license or a passport? How would that work? And you're going to have to rewrite a little and figure that out. Okay, this is the same thing here. This is figuring out the mm, rules, laws, dynamics of your imaginative landscape fascinating and it flows on down to the place from which there is no more down these there make cockatus that is the very lowest bit of hell here named the bottom of hell is going to be i hope i'm not giving the plot away a frozen lake how'd the water get down there ah it's coming from the old man of Crete. And it's coming from all these rivers that are spinning around hell. And it's coming as they flow down into the center of the earth, into this lake. And as Virgil says, I don't have to explain it because you're going to see it on what may be a divinely ordained path. You can see here that my explanation for why Virgil is so crazed about this river, it's the most astounding thing you'll ever see with its stony banks in the last episode of this podcast, why I may not be right, because Virgil's answer isn't anything about a divinely ordained path. It's about the hydraulics of hell, which is a whole different direction to go. But we should just stop before we're going to have one more podcast on the old man of we should just stop here and talk about what we're looking at. Many commentators say that this passage about the old man of Crete is Dante's first real serious myth-making. To that I say, no, come on, the neutrals, that wasn't myth-making, <laughs> the gate of hell, that's not myth-making, the lustful up on the wind, that's not myth-making. Okay, you might say, yeah, but those are drawn from Virgil. They're drawn from classical sources. There's all kinds of explanation for them. There's all kinds of explanation for this too. Daniel, Ovid, Augustine, Virgil. Listen, Dante's been myth-making from the beginning, unless you think that this is all real. Dante's been myth-making from the beginning. This is not his first serious attempt at myth-making. Good grief. The gate of hell, the wood, the beasts, the lion, the leopard, and the she-wolf. There's been so much myth-making already. There's an easy way to overstate this. And here's why I think it often gets overstated in the commentary. is because this canto seems to break into two parts. There's the blasphemers, and then there's this weird, wild thing about a statue inside a mountain on Crete. I'm going to argue in the next episode of the podcast why this is not a two-parter canto. But for now, let's just say 
that this is not serious myth-making. Instead, this is Dante's increasing seriousness about the physicality of his own narr- narrative. It's, 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 how do I say this? It's his need, growing need to be consistent, to find ways in which the narrative can make sense, just like whether he is corporeal or not. It's this dawning sense that the poem is going to have to have an internal logic Dante's vision of hell has a human component. It is this statue crying that creates the waters of hell. So hell, while it may be a place created by God to punish those who are in sin, nonetheless, part of the hell landscape and potentially some of the most interesting parts of the hell landscape, Phlegathon, Styx, Acheron, and finally Cocytus. Some of the most interesting parts of the hell landscape were contributed by a statue of a man. Who makes statues? People make statues. This thing is crying art. And those tears sink down and become part of the hellscape. In other words, the hellscape is not 100% divine directed. It has this weird human component to it, the waters of hell that come from this statue that was clearly built in old myth days or by men or by women or by somebody, this piece of art that is cracked. Hmm. If it's a piece of art that is cracked and degenerating from the golden head on down, it makes you wonder about Dante's notion of art itself and how art is working. And maybe like Henry James in that novel, the late novel, The Golden Bull, maybe Dante is coming to realize that human created art will always have cracks but the cracks don't detract from the beauty, just like in James's The Golden Bowl. But that's perhaps way too much to say. Let's just say that the statue is crying and it is contributing some of the most interesting features to hell itself. That seemed like a lot to say about the old man of Crete, but that was just about the statue. In the next episode of this podcast, I want to talk about the old man of Crete in relation to all of Canto 14. And what's it doing here? I'm going to confess some things to you, and then we're going to play some speculative structural gaming. So subscribe, come back, rate this podcast, like it. I would certainly appreciate it. Thank you so much much for being on this journey with me thank you for being a part of it thank you when you write me thank you when you offer words of encouragement this is my passion project it has nothing to do with my work that pays my mortgage i have wanted to do this for years and i'm doing it and that you're with me thank you thank you thank you i'm mark scarborough and this is walking with dante